is uh, this summer and next summer, if we survive, <laughs> Dan will be uh, fulfilling certain practical requirements that seminaries have for students in terms of doing a pastoral internship. So uh, I've got him doing all sorts of little odd jobs and giving him uh, different experiences. I told him, I said, I, you know, with church our sides, I can't guarantee... Uh, weddings or funerals. Not that I'm asking anybody to cooperate on the latter now. <laughs> but we, we did manage to get him here in time for, uh, for the wedding yesterday so that he could participate in that a little bit. He missed the rehearsal, so he'll have to, if he has to do a wedding, he'll have to figure that out on his own. But uh, that's, that's sort of the function of a pastoral internship is to give these guys some... Uh, experience and to train them, teach them a few things that, uh, that they might need to know, like how to uh, properly clap your arms when you're leading the singing and a few other things of that nature. So we'll be, I'll be sticking him in different places. We're going to have the baptism Wednesday night, so that will give him uh, a little uh, yeah, chance to get wet, <laughs> little hand, hands-on experience there. So... Uh, I know that this is going to be a summer he will write home about. (sighs) This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to use 1 John 1.9 to get in fellowship, then you can have that opportunity so that under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can learn the Word of God and have the objectivity to see how it applies to our own lives. Let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have the freedom in this country to gather together as believers to study your word. Father, it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As Jesus prayed, it is your word that sanctifies us. It is under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we understand it. And Father, it is by your word that our thinking is transformed from the self-deception of arrogance and human viewpoint and worldly thinking that we are transformed to the truth of your word so that we can understand things as they really are 
and be properly oriented to reality. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would have the concentration, the thinking, and the uh, clarity to understand your word and the courage to face the mirror of your word in our own lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. The 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, we have been studying the Gospel of John now for a little over two years, and we are coming to the climax of not only the Gospel, but also human history. Some people, when they study history, like to study the Civil War. They like the Middle Ages, or some folks like ancient history, such as Roman history or Greek history. Different people have different different uh, favorite periods of history that they like to read about. But it is this event that begins in chapter 18 that is the focal point of all of human history. For it is with these events that the most important event in all of history takes place, and that is the event of our salvation. Jesus Christ came into human history for one purpose, and that is to go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. So the focus of all of history is the cross of Jesus Christ. Chapter 18 begins what is called the passion narrative. Passion being an old word for suffering. That's why it's called passion, not in the sense of emotion, but in the sense of suffering. The suffering of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross as our substitute. In chapter 18, 1 through 11, we have the summary of what took place when Jesus Christ was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John does not go into the same detail, certain aspects that the other gospel writers do, so we'll take a little time to to do some cross-referencing there to see what, what took place in the Garden. But one thing that we see here that John wants us to pay attention to is not some of the particular events that took place in the Garden but that this is not an accident. This is just not some event that Jesus got caught off guard, that he and his disciples went back to their campsite in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and all of a sudden he was arrested, that that he's just some uh, unwitting victim to all of this, or that uh, uh, somehow God's plan for his life got foiled. That is not what John wants us to pay attention to. And that's why it's important when studying the Gospel of John, to pay attention to his little editorial asides. And we have seen how John uses vocabulary in very subtle ways, and he also has little editorial sidelines. He'll be going through a narrative, and then there's just one or two words where he he inserts his own thought in order to focus us on the issue. And we see this in verse 4. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that were coming upon him. He is not unaware of what is transpiring. It is not a surprise. He is in complete control. So the theme that John wants us to understand in John 18 is that Jesus Christ is in complete control of all of the events that are transpiring here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the broader theme of this is that Jesus Christ controls history. Man does not. 
Ultimately, Jesus Christ is in control. Now, a lot of people have trouble with understanding the relationship of the sovereignty of God with human volition or free will. And what happens, in fact, Dan and I were talking about this last night as we went for a walk around the, um, around the neighborhood to get a little uh, evening constitutional in after dinner. And we were talking about the relationship of the sovereignty of God and free will and how often people will, will say, well, God is sovereign and when you insert free will, you're just limiting, somehow limiting the sovereignty of God. Now, the answer to that is the same answer to those who are saying that, that, that when, when the tongues question comes up, say, well, you're just limiting God. No, I'm not limiting God. The issue is what does God's Word say and how has God revealed that He has limited Himself in the operation of human history. And God has revealed that He has certain plans and He has certain procedures at different times in human history. He is the one who, who limits Himself and then He explains that to us and that's why just because God acted a certain way in history when there was speaking in tongues and healing, why God has said that that was temporary and there are times when He does not do that. In the same way, God has so constructed human history and it, that in His decree, the, His sovereignty is to coexist with man's freedom. Now, not on an equal basis. Ultimately, God's sovereignty comes out on top as it always does. But God is not only omnipotent and omniscient. I mean, God is both omnipotent and omniscient, which means that God is able to construct reality in such a way that He includes within His broad will and His plan that He will definitely bring about a certain degree of flexibility. A certain degree of flexibility based upon human decision so that God can allow variables within the overall flow of history that do not change history. And God himself is able, therefore, to control and direct history. That gives us tremendous comfort. Because when we go through times of national calamity and national disaster, we can relax just as Daniel did and just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, and we can relax and know that because God is sovereign and God is in control of history, that things are not out of control, even though the circumstances may appear to be completely wacko from our perspective and everything may, may appear to be out of our control, God is in control. In fact, the delusion is that anything is in our control. Nothing is ever under our control, and it's part of our sin nature to try to assert some level of control on our circumstances and on the people and events surrounding our lives. So what we will learn from all of this, and what I want you to pay attention to, is the fact that Jesus Christ controls history even when he is going through the most incredible suffering that ever occurred in human history. What might appear at one level to be the greatest disaster that ever befell the human race. For Jesus Christ came to offer the kingdom, and now all of a sudden, when he is at almost the peak of popularity in one sense, when the, he is welcomed into Jerusalem by public acclaim on the victorious day as he enters in on uh, in his triumphal entry on the uh, foal of a donkey, which just occurred three days prior to this event, 
And now all of a sudden the tables are turned and instead of being welcomed with public acclaim, he will be rejected by the public as a whole. They will choose Barabbas instead of him and he will go to the cross. And it appears to be a great disaster, but it is not. God is in control. I'm always mindful of what Joseph said to his brothers after they sold him into slavery to the Midianites when he was about 14 or 15 years of age because of their jealousy and hatred towards him. And the Midianites then took him down to Egypt, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then years later, he was in prison, spent 14 years or so in prison. And then when he's finally released, he's elevated to the position of second in the land. Years go by, 30, 40 years transpire. And then there's a famine in the land, and, and his brothers come back, and they are reunited. And they're, of course, overwhelmed with guilt at what they had done and... Joseph looked at them and said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the point is that when we look at the details of our lives, no matter how calamitous it may appear, no matter how disastrous it may seem, no matter how painful and horrible those circumstances might be, what we have to realize is that Jesus Christ, who controlled history, controlled the events of the, what appeared to be the greatest disaster of all time when he went to the cross, is just as much in control of the affairs of our own personal lives. The issue is, is God sovereign? Either he is sovereign and he is control of those events when everything falls apart, or he is not. And what the Bible tells us is, yes, he is still in control so we can relax. Jesus Christ is in control of these events, and as he goes through this tremendous suffering, this tremendous rejection, this tremendous shame that is brought upon him for the most uh, heinous of all punishments is that of a cross. Nothing was more shameful, nothing was lower than to be crucified. As Jesus Christ went through all of this, we can understand how he survived with peace, tranquility, in fact, joy. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross that he maintained a mental attitude of stability and happiness in the midst of the greatest rejection ever known in human history, in the midst of some of the greatest pressure and suffering ever known by a human being. Jesus Christ did it. In his humanity, he survived because of certain factors and his dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ came to the earth for a purpose, And this purpose was to go to the cross. In John 12:27, Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled. Now remember, in John 12, this is at the end of John 12. At the end of John 12, he has entered into Jerusalem. And in John 13:1, he sits down for the Passover meal with his disciples. So in, in essence, even though John 12:27 is three or four chapters passed and and six months ago when we studied it, in reality, the events of John 12 occurred just a few hours before the events of John 18.1. Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. And the Greek word there has the idea of being stirred up. And we see the, the emotions in his humanity that are being stirred up by anticipation of what he is going to encounter the next day 
on the cross when he who knew no sin was made sin for us and the sins of the world were to be poured out upon him. So now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus came to die. John 12:32 And I if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. It was his purpose to come to the cross and to die there as a substitute for the sins of mankind. Now let's review our background just a little bit so we know what has been taking place. We have spent four or five months going in detail through the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. It has been the evening of Passover. The Galileans that Jesus has been with operate on a different calendar, different clock system than the Judeans. Therefore, they could celebrate Passover on the night before he went to the cross, whereas at the same time he was on the cross, the Paschal lambs were being sacrificed in the temple, the fulfillment of type and antitype with Christ on the cross so that the Galileans that were in Jerusalem would be celebrating Passover legitimately the night before he went to the cross, and then that afternoon, when he is on the cross, the Judeans are sacrificing their lambs in the temple, so that that is fulfilled specifically and precisely. God does not deal in generalities. He controls history down to the minutest details. So it has been Passover Eve. Jesus spent the Passover with the disciples, celebrated the Passover meal, and it was there that he uh, washed the feet of his disciples in order to demonstrate and exhibit for them the principle of forgiveness and the necessity of cleansing from post-salvation sin. It was also at that event that he told Judas to leave and expelled the unbeliever from the presence of the believers because now it would be time to instruct the believers on new principles related to the spiritual life of the church age. It was during that evening that Jesus instructed them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, about the new commandment that we are to love one another even as Christ has loved us. And there are two or three different occasions that he repeated that command. And that brings us to verse 18. I have pointed out that love was a critical theme or key theme in the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer and that word is no longer used after chapter after the end of chapter 17 until the end of chapter 21 and why is it because in the upper room discourse Jesus was expounding to the disciples and instructing them on what it meant to love one another and how they would have the provision to love one another and fulfill the command through the coming of God the Holy Spirit and that it would be done by remaining in fellowship with him and abiding in Christ. But then he stops using the word love because now, beginning in verse 18, he is going to demonstrate the second half of the command. He said, you are to love your brother as I have loved you. So it is starting in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 18 that Jesus demonstrates the comparison, as I have loved you. So here we are going to see what it means, what is entailed, in loving one another. And one of the first things we will note is that it involves being oriented to the plan and the purposes of God. 
We cannot love, truly love. We will not have capacity for love if we are not oriented to God's plan and oriented to His grace. Because in the midst of loving someone, we can endure hostility, rejection, all sorts of pain. And if we're not oriented to God's plan, then we will succumb to the pressures of the sin nature to simply react to that rejection rather than continue to love impersonally. So we see all of these events. Now, hold your place here, and I want to pick up one other idea that takes place that is left out by John, but I think gives us a little, a, a little better perception of what is going on here. Luke 22, verse 36 and following. Luke 22, 36 through 38. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're getting ready to leave to go to the Mount of Olives. And he says in verse 37, or let's start in verse 36. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. In other words, he's preparing them for what is going to happen. He knows that they're going to scatter, so you better be, if you don't have a few dollars in your pocket when you start on the run, you bet you're going to be in trouble. He knows that they're going to go on the run and they're going to go into hiding. So he says, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to what? Now, this is sweet, passive, turn the other cheek, Jesus. Liberalism is such hogwash. I'll just say that. It's just such hogwash. This is not the meek and mild Jesus of the liberal distortion. This is the God of the universe who deals with sinners in terms of reality. It says, take a money belt along, take your bag for your clothes, and if, you've got, if you don't have a sword, then sell your coat and go buy one. Because there is going to be opposition and hostility, and you need to be prepared to uh, protect yourself. This is valid and legitimate. He says, For I tell you, this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So he is telling them about the fact that that he, Jesus Christ, who is impeccable without sin, is going to be considered a sinner. He will be put on the cross as a criminal, even though he was guilty of nothing. And he says, For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. He is warning them that, All is about to come to fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. Makarios, it's the Roman short sword. And they say they have two of them. So when they go to the garden, they are armed. Now, you never noticed that when you were watching any of those Hollywood movies, that when Jesus prepared his disciples and they were going to leave the upper room, and head off to the Garden of Gethsemane that he made sure they were packing a sidearm. But they were. You see, that's legitimate, despite what the um, the mamby-pamby liberals of our day want to do in terms of keeping people from having personal protection and personal firearms. The Lord thinks it's quite legitimate. And it's always been a factor in human history. You can go back to 1 Samuel Uh, Chapter 19, you discover that the Philistines kept the Jews from having the latest technology 
available, which was iron. The Jews were still in a Bronze Age. The Philistines kept them from having iron so that they could keep them under their control. See, that's how tyrannical governments keep its citizens under control, is by keeping them from having the latest technology, whether the latest technology is a steel sword or an Uzi, doesn't matter. Because if you don't have the latest technology and the government has the latest technology, guess who wins? That is why citizens should always have the right, without registration or any other tyrannical factor, should have the right to personal ownership of weapons, whatever that might be. So Jesus makes sure that they are armed, and he says, good, it is enough. Let's go. Now, why is it that Jesus wanted them to be armed? What is going on here? Remember the principle. Jesus Christ controls history. He wants to make sure that he is arrested correctly, that no one comes up behind him and slips a sword in his back. That's not going to secure uh, salvation. He wants to make sure that he is arrested under on his terms, not under somebody else's terms. So that is why he makes sure they are, they are armed. Jesus Christ is controlling the situation to make sure he is arrested properly and that he ends up dying on the cross and not some other means. So he is going to have them armed. Now let's go back to John chapter 18. Oh, before you go there, while you're still in Luke, look down at Luke 22:44. Instead of having you run back here to dig this out, we're going to look at one other thing that will take place while he is in the garden. He will go into the garden, and he will go aside from his disciples, and he will spend some time in, in prayer. And during this time, he is going to be in, under tremendous adversity. The pressure of knowing what he will encounter the next day is more pressure, more adversity than you and I will ever experience in our lives. In fact, if you total up all of the adversity, all the heartache, all the misery, all the tribulations that you go through in life, add them all up and put them in one intense ball and then square it, It's nothing compared to what Jesus Christ went through here, much less on the cross the next day. And he is able to survive this because he is oriented to God's grace, he is oriented to doctrine in his soul, and he is sustained by God the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 4 that he is, in verse 43, he's strengthened, encouraged by an angel from heaven who... uh, encourages him, and verse 44, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. So there is an intensity in his soul that goes far far beyond anything that most of us have experienced, where his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is a situation called hematidrosis. It is known to medical science, and when a person is under extreme pressure or mental adversity, then what happens is that their skin becomes very sensitive and very thin, and that the capillaries begin to break down, 
and blood gets into the sweat system and mixes so that blood comes out through the skin. But this only happens under extreme circumstances, and it makes the skin extremely sensitive to pain for all the nerve endings are exposed. Now, we're going to come back to that next week when the Romans begin to whip the Lord and remember the state of his skin before he comes to that whipping. This is the state. Every nerve is, is at its most sensitive after this hematidrosis. Now let's turn back to John 18. Jesus is in control of the circumstances after he concludes the high priestly prayer. Then they head to a specific destination. This is not something at random. But Jesus knows exactly where he is going and why. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, had concluded the intercessory prayer of John 17, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Now, if we had a map of Jerusalem, it would look something like this. Here's the city wall here. The upper room was located somewhere in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. It is on the east side of Jerusalem that you have a ravine running that is the brook Kidron. It is an intermittent stream. That means that there's no water there except during times of excessive rain. And the mount, there's a ridge line over here to the east, and this is the Mount of Olives. And located somewhere along the slope of the Mount of Olives, and we do not know exactly where, was a, was a grove of olive trees, an enormous grove. It probably covered five or maybe ten acres. And there was an olive press there, which is somewhat significant and, and symbolic in the episode as well. So Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room, go out through the, through the gate to Jerusalem, and come down to the brook. Now, located above the brook, near this site in Jerusalem, is the temple on the, towards the northeast uh, corner of the city. In the temple, there is the Holy of Holies, where the, that afternoon the priests have been slaughtering the lambs, the lambs without spot or blemish that for the Passover celebration for the Galileans that were down in Jerusalem at that time. Now we're told by Josephus that during the period of, of Passover, as many as 165,000 lambs would be sacrificed for Passover. So we can just extrapolate out that maybe 25 to 30 percent were sacrificed the night before for Galileans who were in town, and uh, that would be quite a large number. 40, 50, 55,000 lambs were slaughtered. And that's a lot, tremendous amount of blood. What do you do with all of that blood running off of the altar? Well, the priests had constructed a, um, a drainage pipe that ran from under the altar, out from under the hillside here, under the temple, and down into the Kidron Valley, down into the brook. And so all of this blood would run out and run down into the uh, Kidron and go along and drain out into, uh, into the land there. So as Jesus and his disciples come along here, and then they cross the Kidron to go to the garden, uh, 
they are walking over the blood that has been flowing from the slain Paschal lambs. And as Jesus looks at that, it is a reminder that he is about to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. There's another aspect that's going on here. Not only do we have the picture of salvation there and the hint from uh, from John. See, if you were Jewish and you were reading this, you would pick up on that. I mean, a Jew at that time, you would you would pick up on that. That just as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ is the one who is prepared to be that sacrificial Lamb. But something else is taking place here. And that goes back to a type from the Old Testament. Now, remember, a type is a shadow of something that is a, will come about in history. So it is a picture of a doctrinal truth or a picture of an event that will take place. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, the context is the Absalom rebellion against David. Absalom was David's son, his favorite son, and he led a revolt against his father and managed to seduce Ahithophel, who was one of David's closest advisors and counselors and friends, over to the rebellion side. And we read in 2 Samuel 15:12, And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo, while, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down calamity on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David gathered around him his faithful followers, and he headed out the gate and down the valley of the Kidron, and up along the slopes of the Mount of Olives as a type of what would take place with Jesus. What caused David to flee? He was betrayed by his close friend. Now David, of course, reflects upon this in the Psalms. And we see this, and these Psalms are prophetic. They are messianic Psalms, portraying that which will take place in the life of Christ. Psalm 41.9, David writes, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That, of course, happened historically with Ahithophel, but it was a type of what would happen when Judas betrayed Christ, a much more serious betrayal. Psalm 55.12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, And my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. This is David reflecting upon the betrayal by Ahithophel. And then, of course, Zechariah 11 portrays and prophesies this same event when it talks about the price of betrayal and prophesies that Judas would would betray Jesus for the price of 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. A picture of the fact that Judas would betray Christ for thirty shekels of silver 
and then in guilt he would throw it into the house of the Lord and it would be used to buy a potter's field. That is a grave site for the impoverished and those on welfare who died and were unable to pay for their own funerals. So what we see here is the fulfillment of several prophecies in the Old Testament given about the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. So he went with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now this garden is set over on Gethsemane. It was a place for the wealthy. Because in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, like many large cities, was crowded. The houses were built out of clay and like adobe and stucco. And, and they were crowded one next to the other. And so there was no room for people to have gardens. So the wealthy had an area over in Gethsemane where the oil trees were, where they could have their gardens. And Jesus had access to that through one of his wealthy followers. He had a key to that area. And this was where he and the disciples would camp out. They would spend their nights over there uh, many times. And we're told in John 7:53 and 8:1 that after the encounter with the Sadducees at that or the Pharisees at that time, we're told that everyone went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, why did he go to the Mount of Olives? It was that was where they usually stayed. He had access to an area there. And the disciples probably had a, some sort of campsite set up there where they kept their whatever material goods that they had and where they spent the night. The Garden of Gethsemane was also site, the site of an oil press. They would take the ripe olives and they would gather them up and put them in that press. And it was there that these olives were taken and through the extreme pressure that was placed upon them, they would squeeze out the valuable liquid. And so this is a picture of the pressure that is taking place in the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is prepared to go to the cross and there perform the greatest act and the most valuable act of human history. So he goes to this garden. It is a place that they normally stay. It's where they have been camped out every night for the last four or five nights since he returned to Jerusalem. And he goes and he takes his disciples with him. He doesn't leave them somewhere. This is another major issue here is how Jesus takes care of his followers. He doesn't leave them somewhere so knowing that if he's arrested, they might be arrested or scattered. He keeps them close by so that he can protect them. Then verse 2, there's a ship to Judas. Now I want you to notice that through this, and I haven't emphasized this much in the past, but there's an interesting dramatic interplay between three figures in John. Jesus, Judas, and Peter. And Judas and Peter are a contrast. You see that contrast in the upper room the night before when, when, when Judas is betraying the Lord and he's obsequious and he sort of wants to do whatever Jesus wants him to do, but Peter won't even let the Lord wash his feet. And then the Lord has to teach Peter a few things about doctrine. But Peter stays and Judas is expelled. And now we're going to see Judas introduced here. And when we get into the next section, there is an interesting interplay between Peter and the arrest and all of this. So that, that by weaving the events together like this, John is building tension and he is creating 
the drama of this scene. This is the most dramatic and profound event in all of history. And, and by taking our time to go through it clause by clause and verse by verse, sometimes we lose the sense of the drama here. But this is powerful, and the way it is written is to heighten the tension of these events and to, and to play off the characters one against the other so we feel the conflict that is taking place at the most crucial event of history. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him. Notice how John uses the participle here. It's a present active articular participle of the Greek verb paradidomi, which means to give over or to betray. And the present tense of the participle here emphasizes that while Jesus has been teaching the disciples in the upper room and then praying for them, that what has been going on behind the scenes is that Judas has left and he has gone to the Pharisees and he has called for Jesus' arrest and he's going to betray them and the Sanhedrin has met. And the Sanhedrin has discussed this case because they are ready to arrest Jesus because they're afraid that, that he's become so popular that he's going to create a problem for the Romans. See, they're more concerned about what might take place with the Roman government and their hostility than the salvation of Israel. So, so Judas has gone to the Sanhedrin, but they're limited under Roman rule. They're limited as to what they can do. So the Sanhedrin has very little authority, so they send Judas to the Romans to gather the, the Romans together. So all of this has been going on. Judas has been working behind the scenes with the Jewish religious leaders and with the military authorities of Rome in order to betray Jesus. So now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. So Jesus isn't in hiding. Notice, he, he goes right to the spot where he is aware Judas will come. He's, this is no accident. He knows exactly what he is doing. Judas knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, Now Judas, remember, is not a believer. Judas is called in the, in the uh, high priestly prayer, the son of perdition. That is from the Greek apolumi, which means the destroyed one or the one who is perishing. And that is the same word that is used in the verb form over in John 3.16. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. And so Judas is the one who is perishing because he has not believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior, so he is not a believer. In fact, he is indwelt by Satan. We saw that in our study of John 13, that, that Satan entered into him. And there's the Greek word ace erkomai. Ace erkomai is used in almost every uh, narrative in the... New te- in, the, in the Gospels that talk about demon possession. In demon possession passages talks about the demon going into someone and uses this particular Greek word, ace erkomai. E-I-S is the preposition meaning to go into. Erkomai, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, means to come or, or, or to go. So it means to go into someone, inside someone. It's, 
interesting. I just this last uh, couple of weeks I was reading a systematic theology that's come out in the last three or four years by uh, one of the new generation uh, conservative theologians, and I was reading the section on uh, demonism and demonology, and he he just makes the same mistakes that many people are making today. And he said, there's no word in the Bible for demon possession. That's a made-up theological concept, that the only word we have in the Greek is daimonizomai, and that means to be acted upon by a demon. Well, he has committed what's called an exegetical, or what's called an etymological fallacy. He has tried to define the word on the basis of its etymology or its root meanings. And he doesn't look at the context. And daimonizomai could mean, could possibly mean just to be acted upon by a demon. But the context won't allow it. Because around the context always includes words like ace erkamai that the demon went into, ex erkamai the demon came out of, and Jesus cast out the demon ek balo. So that makes it clear that daimonizomai isn't just some general word meaning to be acted upon by a demon, but it does truly mean demon possession, and that is not only a, leg- a legitimate translation, it is the correct translation. But yet, that's not popular today because, you see, we live in a society where ultimately we want to avoid responsibility for our sins, so one solution is to take the old Flip Wilson line, it's the devil who made me do it, and uh, blame the devil or demon possession and and it really wasn't my fault. Well, Judas is demon-possessed. He has rejected the gospel. He's rejected Christ. And so once that happens, God intensifies the judgment on Judas in his reversionism and allows him to be indwelt by Satan and used for his purposes against Jesus Christ. So Judas goes and he gets a Roman cohort. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, so as he goes to... Uh, the Romans, they give him a cohort. Now, the Greek word here is the word spira. Looks like this, S-P-E-I-R-A. And that refers to a tenth of a Roman... Roman legion. Roman legion consisted of about 6,000 men. It could be larger. So a cohort consisted of at least 600. The definite article is there, which indicates that this is the main cohort that is stationed at the uh, Fortress Antonio, named after Mark Antony. It was built by Herod, and because he admired Mark Antony and had aligned himself with him, he named it after Mark Antony, and it's called the Fortress Antonio, and they were stationed there, and this was one of the worst billets for a, uh, a Roman officer, a Roman soldier, because there was such a rebellion in the land, and there was so much turmoil in Judea and with the Jews that, that it was a very dangerous situation. So the um, uh, uh, legion had about 6,000 men, had, was divided into 10 cohorts, and each cohort was then divided into three maniples, and then each maniple was further divided into two centuries, each commanded by a centurion. So a centurion then commanded about a hundred men. So 
he's given this Roman cohort. Now think about it. You've got Jesus and 11 disciples, the Prince of Peace, who is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're going to arrest him. So they send out not just 25 or 30 men, they send out an entire cohort, or the better part of it. They might have been a large, sometimes cohorts were as large as a thousand, so we can imagine that a good, at least the majority of them went, at least probably two of the maniples, so we probably have a minimum of four, 400 troops, maybe more, coming through the night to arrest Jesus at Gethsemane. Now we're told that they have a uh, they all have torches, lanterns and torches. So here come 600 Roman soldiers carrying torches in one hand and swords in the other hand. But it wasn't just the Roman cohort. Along with them came the temple police. Officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came along with them. And in Luke we're told that they were part of the temple police. So you probably had another 100 or 200 police from the temple coming to arrest Jesus. So now you have Jesus and, and the disciples uh, camped out in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they start hearing now six or eight hundred men coming through the night is not quiet. And they, especially when they have all of these, uh, and why did they have all of the torches and lanterns? Because when Judas and the Pharisees came to them to say, you know, this is an insurrectionist. He, he, he's leading a rebellion. We don't know. He has many, many followers. We don't know how many there are. And he's going to create more trouble. See, they had to play up the picture and tell a lot of lies about Jesus. So the, the uh, soldiers are not sure what they're going to meet. There may be an ambush for them. This is a, a grove of olive trees. They don't know where Jesus is in the garden. It's Like I said, it was probably, probably covered between five and ten acres. And it's very dark at night under these enormous olive trees so that we know because it's Passover that there's a full moon at night and they could see very clearly but they wanted to make sure they weren't ambushed or taken, taken by surprise. So here's this it's almost a ludicrous picture of all of these soldiers and police coming to arrest Jesus and the disciples. Now, verse 4. Well, before we get to verse 4, we have to understand the political background here and why the Pharisees are so upset. In John 11:48, Caiaphas had said, if we let him, referring to Jesus, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Jews are operating from a position of fear that somehow they're going to lose their autonomy. How ironic. By arresting Jesus and rejecting Jesus as Messiah, they lost their autonomy in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed them. And if they had accepted him as their leader, Rome could have never stood against him. So by taking their course of action, they doomed themselves to just what they were trying to avoid. And we see them come to Jesus. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. This is the mark of courage. We see our Lord taking initiative and taking the stand. He's up in the trees and this army is coming to get him, and Jesus steps out from the trees, and he says, Who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? He challenges them. He keeps his disciples behind them, because in his role, he is maintaining his protection of his sheep. We see the great shepherd in action. 
And they answered him in verse 5, Jesus the Nazarene. See, they don't know. The Romans can't spot him, and they, he's in, probably in some shadow. And he answers to them, notice, the he here is in italics. Just scratch it out, because that distorts the, con- the whole context. They come to him and they say, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, Ego, me." Now this means... E-G-O is the verb, or is the first person personal singular pronoun, I. And a me also means I am, because it's in the first person singular. But by emphasizing it with ego, Jesus is making a strong theological point. The a me, E-I-M-I, means I am. Now, when God appeared to Moses in Exodus, Moses said, Okay, you want me to go deliver the people, by whose name shall I say I am delivering? And God said, my name is Yahweh, which comes from the uh, Hebrew verb for to be, Hayah. So this is, when you bring it over into, G- into Greek, this is the name for God. I am who I am. I am has sent me. That's what God told Moses to say. I am has sent me. Ego, a me. When Jesus says that, he speaks with all of his omnipotence and all of his authority. And look at what happens. The army falls down. They cannot stand for this quick moment in time, this army coming to arrest the Lord of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains them in their life at that very instant. They collapse on the ground in obedience before him with that sound of his voice. They cannot avoid his authority. Said, Who do you speak? He said, I am, and Judas, who was betraying him and standing with him, when therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now think about the drama of this. Here is Jesus in the tree line. Here is this army of six to eight hundred coming to arrest him. He announces his name and they fall on the ground. And they get up. Now, you would think, that you would imagine something significant has just taken place if this man spoke and it knocked me down. But this is the evidence of negative volition and the self-deception of arrogance. They ignore the whole thing. That couldn't have happened. If that happened, he is who he claims to be and, and I've rejected God and so therefore... Because God doesn't exist and He can't be the Messiah, that really didn't happen. And so they can't even face reality. This is what happens when people are in arrogance and in rejection of doctrine. No matter how much empirical evidence you give them when you're witnessing, you can build the greatest case in the world. You can argue with the greatest logic of all of history. You can make every point crystal clear, but it's up to their volition to reject it. How much more clear can it be than the God of the universe saying, I am, and they fall on their faces before Him? But they get up, and it really didn't happen. You see, this is what it means in Romans 1 when it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. This is the self-deception of negative volition. So they fall on their faces before him and they get up and they collect themselves and, and I imagine they just have mass, mass self-deception here, crowd psychology. And once again, Jesus says, 
Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene, just as if nothing had happened. And Jesus answered and said, I told you I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their ways. Referring to the disciples. You see, this is the role of the great shepherd. He, he, it's not for them to be arrested. Jesus is going to stand there between the armies arresting Him and His disciples to protect them and to let them go to make sure. And that's one reason He asks them twice, Who do you seek? Because He wants everyone to be clear they're not seeking the disciples, they're just seeking Jesus. And so He is exercising His role as our great shepherd in protecting the disciples, and we see that He continues to do the same thing for us today. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which He spoke. Of those whom Thou hast given Me, I lost not a one. So this shows that Jesus not only protects us spiritually in terms of eternal security, but He has a plan for our life, and nothing can prevent us from fulfilling that plan for our life unless we have to be taken out under divine discipline. This means we can relax. This means that no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter how horrible it may be, no matter how dangerous it might seem, whether we are here or in some foreign country as a missionary or whatever it might be, there is no threat that can take us out of this life apart from God's uh, authorization. So this is what Jesus is illustrating in his protection of the disciples. And then we have one of those great little episodes that cause us to see how, how human Peter is. Verse 10, Simon Peter, therefore having a sword, so somehow Peter got a hold of one of those two Machairos, Machairos swords, and he grabs it and he decides that now is the time to protect the Lord. And so he grabs the sword and he swings it. Now, Peter had good aim. He wasn't shooting for the ear. He was either trying to take the guy's off head off or he's probably just going to cleave his head in two and he took a swing and the high priest slave dodges it so that the only thing he loses is his ear notice the detail that John gives us this isn't just some general uh, account written a hundred years later like the liberals claim he cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus he gives us detail I'm an eyewitness I know who was there and I know exactly what happened he cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now John doesn't tell us what happened to the ear, but the other Gospels do. That Jesus is a demonstration of his impersonal love and of his care and compassion even for the lost and His grace, even when they are in the midst of arresting Him and all the rejection that is taking place, Jesus does not react. He reaches down and picks up the ear, puts it back on Malchus, and it's healed. One wonders if Malchus was saved. How much greater testimony could there be? But there were others that Jesus healed and did not respond. What we see in this entire episode is how Jesus handles adversity the greatest adversity in all of history. In conclusion, we need to remember Jesus faced the greatest adversity, greater than anything we will ever face. And in the midst of this, He maintained His composure, He kept His poise, and He continued to function and maintain control no matter how out of control things became around Him. 
what gave him that stability and that composure. First of all, he understood God's plan, so he was oriented to doctrine. He knew what the plans and purposes were. He understood grace. He knew what God's provision was, and he was committed to that. He was not arrogant. He's not self-absorbed. He's not involved in some pity party about how everything's falling apart and we're losing control and I'm just not going to get to be Messiah after all. But because he is completely submissive to the Father's plan, he can relax and do exactly what he's supposed to do. So he's grace-oriented, he's doctrinally oriented, and he's operating on the faith-rest drill. Furthermore, he is sustained by the same Holy Spirit who sustains us. He's walking by the Spirit and he is pioneered for us the same spiritual power, the same source of power that we have available to us every single day in the Christian life. Furthermore, he understood that even the worst that man could do to him was nothing compared to his joy in eternity and the importance of fulfilling the divine mission in life. So because he's oriented to doctrine, he has the right perspective on reality and he is not making mountains out of molehills and he is not pushing the panic button. Because of his spiritual maturity and his humanity, and we're reminded in Luke 2.42 that he did advance to spiritual maturity in the same way every other human must, he had personal love for God which motivated his love for mankind, and in the midst of rejection and hostility, he still cared enough to heal the ear on Malchus. So above all, he's motivated by God's plan. We're told in Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. So in these first 11 verses, we see his arrest, and then next time we'll come back and see the trials and how the perfect, impeccable Son of God, the one who knew no sin, was found to be guilty as a criminal and how he was railroaded and sent to the cross with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your grace that you provided such a tremendous salvation for us that it is not based on who we are or what we do. It is not based on any moral reformation in our lives. It's not based on church attendance, church membership, or any other human factor. It is based on exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of where they will spend eternity, that they would make that certain right now. All that you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't need to get involved in any sort of ritual. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to join the church. You don't need to do anything else. Scripture says it's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All you need to do is accept that as a free payment. That Jesus did it all and we just rest in His provision. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might be challenged and encouraged as we study what you have done for us and the depths of our salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.